Welcome back to Charles Sturt Stories. In this episode of our alumni podcast, we're taking you to the coalface of some of the world's largest natural disasters. IT professional Andre Verity has worked as a disaster responder at the United Nations for more than a decade, and he spoke to our Vice-Chancellor about the vital role IT plays in the face of adversity. Hello and welcome to our inaugural alumni podcast series. I'm Professor John Germov, the Interim Vice-Chancellor of Charles Sturt University. Today, I'm speaking with one of our IT graduates who's dedicated most of his career to using his skills to support humanitarian efforts around the globe. Welcome, Andre Verity, and thank you for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks, John. It's a, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you today. Now, Andre, before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to say a hearty congratulations on winning the Service to the Community Award in our inaugural Distinguished Alumni Awards program. It's a great, great outcome. Well done. Thank you, John. It was it was definitely a bit of a surprise as uh, as well. It's very humbling uh, when I award, won the award, so I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, Andre. And look, let's now unpack the work that you've been doing, and we'll show very clearly, I think, to our audience why you ended up winning that award. You're literally the IT guy that uses your skills to really support organisations during natural disasters. So you can tell me a little bit about your job and what a somewhat stressful day in the office might look like for you. Sure. Well, you know, days vary quite a bit from, from one to another. And I have been in the United Nations for over 15 years in the sort of humanitarian and disaster space. And, and you know, I have my sort of day-to-day job, but also do a lot of response to the sudden onset disaster. So you think of the Haiti earthquake or uh, the Nepal earthquake or, you know, floods and typhoons in the Philippines, for example. You know, I think if you want to talk about one of the most challenging days, and I think it's because it, it still sticks with me in my mind, is when I was deployed in Haiti, it was, I mean, this country was quite devastated, or especially around Port-au-Prince and some of the larger areas. And I was deployed out of Port-au-Prince uh, for a few days out to a, an area or city called Leogan, uh, very much at the front line. So you left sort of the operations base, which was at the main airport in Port-au-Prince and drive through just absolute destruction, just all the way along. And you see people who are struggling, but still trying to get back to life um, or back to regular day life. I still remember when we went out to Leogan and we set up an office and our office was literally just a tent just sort of a two-sided tent, simple tent. That's where we would run meetings. But I was in the, we were set up in a schoolyard and the school itself was destroyed. And in that schoolyard was the, the OCHA office who I worked for and a volunteer group of Canadian medics. So doctors and nurses just on their vacation time coming down to help. But just seeing the line of people that were there looking for medical support and people several days not having been treat, treated with broken bones or these different kinds of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm quote unquote, sitting in my tent, trying to make sure the internet works, trying to make sure our data collection is there, trying to create products and visuals for, for our team, for the community that's responding in the area. And at the same time, you know, five meters away, we have people sort of crying. And I still really, really remember, you know, one child screaming in pain while being having to be treated by the, by the medics. You know, so that's the kind of things that you're seeing or possibly being exposed to in these kinds of emergencies. And, you know, as a IT slash information management professional, oftentimes you're one step back. 
but sometimes you're right at that front line. These are very stressful moments. And, you know, I've only had a handful and it did, you know, reflecting on that did really give me a, an appreciation for those others who are there day after day after day. Uh, there can be some uh, very challenging days, that's for sure. Mentally, you know, physically only sleeping for a few hours. What you always have to hope is that at the end of the day, your work is helping in some way, even if you weren't the medic that's, you know, repairing a broken bone or providing stitches or something even more severe, that you are somehow helping them indirectly and thus helping those who are affected. Challenging doesn't quite cover it, I think, Andre, but it must be amazing to be dealing with, you know, such uncertainty and instability when you, particularly when you first arrive. Now, in addition to Haiti, you also worked in the Philippines, I understand, during the typhoon that uh, devastated. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in the Philippines twice for disaster response, once in, once in 2009, which was the Manila floods, and then once again in late 2013, beginning of 2014, for Typhoon Haiyan, which was obviously you know, the big one that most people talk about because it was such a sort of wide swath of the country that was affected, and thus so many different locations. And so, yeah, it was definitely one of the biggest ones that I've ever deployed to, that's for sure. And uh, presented some interesting challenges, you know, because of the, you know, the island nature of the country and then having offices spread out geographically. And, but yet a lot of the coordination and the government traditionally running out of Manila. So how do you coordinate a humanitarian response that's often more remote areas, but then the government and everything else is centralized. So yeah, different, different kinds of natures, different challenges. How do you gather information when when the sort of traditional or orthodox means of collecting it and and transmitting it aren't available, have literally been destroyed by the natural disaster. Yeah, and and that definitely happens. You know, you you see in the worst affected areas of the Philippines or, you, you know, people I think can often easily understand in large earthquakes that, especially at the beginning, the individuals in those more traditional or formal networks are very possibly themselves affected, right? So we often will look for other non-traditional means. And so the Philippines uh, was after sort of a few years of work in this space where we, we worked with uh, or sort of partnered with groups of volunteers. Uh, and and uh, there was an institute, the Qatar Computing Research Institute, for example, that was doing some work for us on uh, machine learning um, and scraping of public social media, mostly Twitter. And we you know, so we were looking at how do we pull in these non-traditional sources of information filter it and then you know pull that in and we were able to take that kind of content turn it into maps uh, or other visual products we put it into sort of an um, it was used as secondary data what was what we refer to as sort of secondary data source for needs analysis and sort of understanding of the situation and where the needs were so sort of complementary information a lot of the time so you know we often talk about one of the products I, I created there in the first few days was uh, at least 40 percent of the product we know came from social media sources. And this is very uncommon, right? Traditionally, everyone was like, oh, it needs to be you know, traditional sources, uh, highly trusted, verified. And, and we, we put in mechanisms to deal with the social media. And what I found interesting was we put this in to, let's call them usual or traditional products. So it wasn't new for people to consume. They would look at the product, understand it as they had before. And what I was really excited about in that case was some of those products I specifically put in front of the UN's most senior humanitarian official, the Undersecretary General for OCHA, 
when she arrived in country at the time as part of her sort of five minute briefing package, like literally she had probably five minutes. I saw her in an office looking at these products. And then she walked into the next room to give some of the first media briefings about her understanding of the situation. So it was really interesting there where you can see that sort of direct impact and uh, of, of your work, your products, but then being able to also relate that back to all those people who supported you, all those volunteers or, um, or various people who supported on, the, on putting the products together. Wow, that's, that, that's what I call time critical, critical work. I wonder if you could, you could unpack that a little bit more for us in terms of, you know, for people who aren't as tech savvy or familiar with disaster relief operations, what are some of the things you actually do when you're on the ground, when you've come into a new situation, you know, the type of work that's involved? Yeah, definitely. And that's it's, it's a common question. I think even my uh, my wife asked me sometimes to explain. Yeah, it's I mean, often it's a mixed sort of bag or mixed collection of things that we will take on. And there's a really interesting visual that OCHA has created for our what we call information management staff. And generally, an information management officer can be responsible for up to 50 things or 50 tasks. And there's only a few that you see sort of above the waterline and there's so many that are underneath it. So where I'm getting at there is there's, there's lots of things. So what I talk about, say infrastructure, where we might, not necessarily we as in me or an individual, but we might be working with partners or with national authorities to help get telecommunications set up again, or even for the humanitarian community. Uh, so some partners will specifically the emergency telecoms cluster, for example, will work to set up infrastructure um, for connectivity. Some cases, you know, we provide connectivity to the affected people, to refugees or relief camps. So there's sort of the infrastructure side. Then there's what I would refer to as the information management side. And this is where we start looking at, let's say, what is the big picture that the decision makers need to understand so that they can make decisions? And so in that, where we get into then is, all right, what kind of data do we need? How do we collect that data? So then we might need to build those networks. We might need to bring together partners to work with them to get their data collection going, the standardization of that data. It could be the basic data that would be needed for the urban search and rescue people. And what they might need is, what is the status of the various buildings in the, in the area? What sort of type of construction were they? Which ones have been searched and have not been searched? So what do I do tomorrow, right? Where do we go for the next, the next time? So that decision maker there is the one tasking out the different urban search and rescues teams as to where to go, when to go, how to prioritize. So we get into you know, building tools, dashboards, creating maps. That's sort of the most common ones are visuals or infographics. We do a lot of negotiation, as I'm mentioning, sort of bringing partners together, uh, whether it's governments, it could be national gov governmental organizations, so the NGOs, INGOs, private industry, trying to agree on standards, releasing data, making sort of data and information flow, sort of understanding what's going on, where's the damage, what's the situation. So, and there's a lot within each of those. We support a lot of tools, a lot of products, support, as a, you know, I mentioned, a whole lot of different types of decision makers, whether they're operational decision makers, like the urban search and rescue, where we might create a product for them, and it's only good for a certain number of hours. Whereas, you know, you go all the way up where we might also be supporting the Undersecretary General, who is conducting a press conference in New York, and needs certain visuals to be given out to the donors, or to the press, or to be put behind him or herself for a visual. Um, so you get this whole spectrum. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it, th there's a lot of time pressure and, you know, there's a lot of demand. And that's why, especially the people I find in the, this information management world, 
are the ones that are working late into the evening and you know into the early hours because you know by the time everyone else sort of wraps today that's when we can start focusing on creating the products and getting things ready for the for the next day so that's incredibly stressful work but incredibly uh, impressive work that you've been involved in and you know what what amazes me is that I hear that you managed to do some of that work as a disaster responder while studying a master's of IT, a master's of information technology at Charles Sturt. Now that couldn't have been easy. How did you go about it? You know, I realized I was at a point in my career in the UN, I wanted to sort of push myself to that next level. But the challenge I knew with my work was there was the possibility of A, being deployed to emergencies, um, like we've talked about, and B, potentially just being moved geographically right? Because of a change of jobs or change of locations. Uh, and both of those actually did happen while I was taking my master's. So when I was looking around for my master's, and I was looking for a reputable university that understood remote learning. And so that's where, you know, I came across Charles Sturt. When I got into the coursework, you know, a lot of it was known up front or it was, it was well articulated up front. So I actually found at least to a degree, depending on the class, I could work ahead. So I had to deploy to the Philippines in 2009. I could just not worry about my school for probably about two or three weeks. Maybe I'll be a little behind, but when I go back home, it'll be fine. I'll catch up. It was definitely something Charles Sturt made possible, you know, because through their sort of understanding and their flexibility. And, you know, it was something I, as I've said, I've clearly, clearly appreciated that. Well, that, that is something we are genuinely known for. And, and I think your example of your studies is really a great one in terms of the benefits of online and remote learning where it really does allow you to work anywhere in the world and fit in your study with your lifestyle and, and, and your work. And I'm so, so happy to hear that it, that it worked out so well for you. I'm curious, Andre, I wonder if you have any advice for our listeners, perhaps those who might be promising IT professionals or considering a career in disaster response. So what I would say to people is, and it was something I came across recently, look for ways that you can solve a problem. What I mean by this is it will help you sort of find satisfaction, I believe, right? You, you will feel good about your job. And by a problem, I don't mean global scale, international disaster, right? This could be working on the IT systems of the emergency response team. So I think of in the United States or Canada, it's the 911 system in the Netherlands here, it's 112, right? So helping those helping the IT systems for firefighters, for example, or think of in COVID times, especially the, the frontline health workers. So if you're working to provide them better solutions that they can then work with to help people who are suffering, I think you are then solving this problem or a problem. But I think, I think that's an interesting way to look at it is, are, can you use your skills to help people solve a problem? You know, and, and I know, we all need private industry, so I'm not going to say that you shouldn't be just using your skills to make somebody money, but you know, there's different kinds of problems. And I see the private companies that we partner with on different things that are trying to use their platforms for these kind of purposes, right? To help communities. So it doesn't even mean that you can't be working in a private company, but they often will have a you know, social responsibility type program or crisis response. So there are definitely a lot of spaces uh, out there, but I think it's yeah, look at what kind of sort of problems that you might be able to help people solve. Well, thank you for that, that wise advice. But um, just, uh, we're almost at the end of our interview, but really, what do you do when you're not traveling <laughs> the globe after, you yeah. know, and, and entering the aftermath of a natural 
disaster. So what's your role uh, at the UN during those times? My, I call it my day-to-day job. I lead a team of, I guess, the simplest way, a team of developers and system engineers that are spread around the world. And what we do is we, we do the technical management of about 18 to 20 humanitarian sites. Um, so some of those are uh, like our corporate website for unocha.org. But, you know, the biggest humanitarian site of reliefweb.int is one that our team supports on the technical side. Um, but we also provide support for about 40 humanitarian sites in terms of sort of infrastructure and some system engineer support. And, and that's things like the humanitarian data exchange, right, which is the largest humanitarian data portal that's available. And we provide support to, to that team. So I'd say in my, maybe I, I call it my 10 or 20% time, I tend to bring in interns uh, from various universities to oftentimes focus on sort of research in the space of the intersection of technology and humanitarian affairs. So the most recent one was looking at this question of how much does it actually cost to collect humanitarian data, right? So sometimes we get overzealous and maybe we spend too much money trying to do that. We have one looking at cyberbullying. I had one uh, intern a couple of years ago, her research was what is quantum computing and how will it affect the humanitarian sector? I had a couple of story around artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence in uh, UAVs or drones. So some really interesting topics. So it's more as a way selfishly to force me to think about these issues and, and, and uh, try to bring these ideas and concepts in. So trying to sort of bring the students and those ones who are learning and maybe at the forefront of ideas and so forth uh, into help guide me as to do some research. Andre, it's been truly fascinating to hear about your work and your role at UN. Look, Andre, thank you so much for um, sharing your insights into your career and uh, the crucial work that you're involved with. And I think now our audience really does understand why you won one of our uh, alumni awards. Thanks again for joining me.